Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. With me today is Rebecca Caden. Rebecca is a managing partner at Union Square Ventures, and more importantly, just one of the best venture capitalists I know. So, Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I've learned this lesson the hard way, which is sometimes I ask a guest, tell us how you got here, and they go all the way back to telling me their third grade teacher's <laughs> middle name. But you do have a really interesting background, so give it to us quickly if you don't mind. I'll do it very, uh, very high level. Um, I'm from New York City originally, um, which comes back to play later on in the story, but I moved out to California after I graduated from college, very focused on being a journalist, writing from various publications, um, and, and landed as an editor at a magazine, um, which I really loved, but eventually brought me to business school, kind of thinking about the future of publishing, which I didn't even come close to getting into. Um, but while I was at school at Stanford, you know, drank the bug around technology, which is easy to do there, and um, had a close mentor at school named Bill Campbell, who some people might know, but was known in the, as the coach in Silicon Valley. He um, had originally been the football coach of a Columbia, but was on the board of Apple and Google, I think the only person to be on that board at the same time. And uh, chairman of Intuit and and mostly coach kind of big name people, but all the way on the other side, got to know students at business school at Stanford. And I became close to him and was really kind of wandering around what I wanted to do. And he said, you know, I think you should be a VC. Um, and he introduced me to Mavron, which is a West Coast based firm where I spent about six years um, investing in consumer based technology platforms and then joined the partnership at USB, which brought me back to New York, which I was very happy about, um, about five years ago. Let me start with New York because you are a true New Yorker. I don't think it's controversial to say that Union Square Ventures is the most successful and prestigious venture fund in New York City. I'm sure you feel that way too, but I'll, I'll also say it. Um, but in the early 2000s, you know, New York wasn't the tech hub that it is today. And when Albert and Fred started the fund, there was no guarantee that the, there'd be enough deal flow locally to, to allow a local fund to succeed. How do you think the New York tech scene has kind of evolved since then? Yeah, I mean, so USV has always been very, and I, I speak about USV, including, uh, you know, decades before I actually joined the partnership and, and much more what my partners built. But, uh, you know, USV is made up of New Yorkers who are very passionate about New York and it being a great place to live for those in tech and outside of tech um, and to build businesses. Our portfolio has never been all based in New York, right? Our portfolio um, has always been national. At this point, is relatively global, but we've always enjoyed when it when we could find great New York investments and encourage great New York entrepreneurs. I think over time, that's gotten in some ways easier and easier to do. You know, like Silicon Valley, I think New York benefits from a from becoming a hub, and that just takes time. You need massive multi-billion dollar exits that spin out new teams, that build new companies, that create a web of angels around them, that build an ecosystem rather than individual results. You know, that's always been true in Silicon Valley. That's the Google ecosystem. That's the PayPal mafia. You have all of these stories. And New York, it just took longer um, for that to happen. But now it really has, right? When you look at New York, it has you know, at this point, I think we can fairly say many multi-billion dollar technology exits and new teams spinning out of it. Um, I also think like many other things, um, necessity breeds change in a, in a favorable way here. COVID 
you know, started really, really poorly for New York. But at the end of this whole thing, people are going to live where they love to live. And New York is an incredible city to live in. And so it, when you can be anywhere and when work has shifted remote or hybrid, people, we're finding teams in our portfolio that started elsewhere very quickly gravitating to New York simply because it's awesome to live in New York. Right. So, okay. So, so the conventional wisdom is that everyone fled, you know, to Miami and Austin once the residents have to be in New York to, for work anymore. But what you're seeing in your portfolio is the opposite. I don't know. I mean, you know, we can all debate what we want to hear here. My bet is that some of that, the the flee to Austin, the flee to Miami. Look, Miami and Austin are great. One, the weather is awesome. Like, I understand wanting to live on the beach. But for people who are really building new companies and new technologies, I think we're seeing a bunch of those people come back. All right. So I'm sure you're tired of hearing this question. You probably get asked it every single day. But in the market we're in right now, what should founders be doing? What are you telling the founders in your portfolio? You know, one of the things that I think is hard about this question is it depends where you are as a founder. Um, I think the universal truths of it are reframing the business from growth at any cost and a total prioritization on top line metrics to the fundamentals underneath it. I'm, you know, I'm far from the only person to have said it. That's not going to sound new or revolutionary, but what you're seeing is that there's, you know, as people slow down when thinking about investing and take more time to really analyze businesses and think harder about where those next dollars are going to come from. They're spending more time on things like, you know, margin and acquisition costs and fundamentals that go into the creation of the business versus just the growth. And so that's reprioritizing things in the founder's mind. I think that is true, whether you're on day one of starting a business or, you know, a growth stage company. That being said, you know, there are companies that have hundreds of millions of dollars on the balance sheet because they did very well in a market of you know massive amounts of capital and being able to aggregate it. And they also have to make a mental shift, right? Which is even if we have a deep balance sheet, how do I run my business in this economy to make that last the longest and get us the farthest? And in some ways, that's as hard with a big balance sheet as it is not because it's a big mental shift. On the other end, if you're just starting, you're you're really focused on, you know, what did I grow to believe that I needed to raise money that is no longer true, right? So if I thought I was comping against these metrics, this comes up all the time in our portfolio. Founders saying, look at this company, they got to $1.5 million of ARR and they raised a $25 million round. And we say that was true, but it's a different market. And how do we find the comps and kind of goalposts in a new reality right now? So are you worried that once you return to a hot market again and irrational exuberance and all the usual nonsense that, you know, everyone just turns their focus right back to hockey stick growth? Or do you think there are lessons that we're learning today that people might actually hold on to? I mean, I think the history of time would teach us there are no fundamental lessons to be learned, right? That like, yes, at some point that will happen and probably we'll all, you know, everyone will forget largely because... It's like two sides of the same coin. One of the amazing things about founders and entrepreneurships is many of them are first time and history only kind of applies to them. And that's part of the best things about the ecosystem and how you get incredible outcomes. And it's also the shortcoming where, yeah, you don't remember the last cycle, you know, you weren't in it. Um, and so, you know, you have to balance those two realities. So I'm sure that will happen again. I'm not so optimistic that that's so soon. 
Um, I think this may be a longer recovery just as the way it was a longer boom. And so we're really anchoring on people on, you know, believing they're going to have to think like this for the foreseeable future. As a funder, you guys are assuming what? No liquidity events for 12, 24, 36 months? Um, well, for us, that's a little bit of a complicated question. We're definitely assuming less, uh, fewer liquidity events in the next 24 months than we've had in the previous 24 months. That is without question. Um, and I guess I'm more pessimistic than maybe others in the market that the IPO window is going to open, you know, in in 2023, um, or even or at least open well in 2023. Um, that being said, you know, we have a um, a pretty strong crypto portfolio, um, and a lot in that, and we have price targets against a lot of it, and you know, that's had its own depth of winter and is still in it, but. I'm not convinced that that won't get to a place where we don't see some liquidity in that in the next 24 months. So in crypto specifically, you know, where do you think the next innovation comes from? Is it another form of infrastructure just so it becomes more like any other form of finance? Or is there some kind of quantum leap that needs to happen? My attitude is there has been very good but not complete innovation on the infrastructure and tooling level of things. And that is where USB has spent most of our time investing. So layer ones, layer twos, things like this. They're, you know, it's been messy. They're not all good, but there's a bunch of really interesting innovation in those and ecosystems emerging. You're seeing some of them currently explode, but others not. And that's probably net net over time healthy for the ecosystem. And I think some of those will mature. Where I think you need the real innovation to occur is on the application side. I think without strong applications outside of speculation that in a very consumer productized way, add the next 1 million, 10 million, 100 million users to Web3 in a way that in one sentence they can explain the value of it, this ecosystem is not gonna make a quantum leap. So putting on the spot, how would you describe the value proposition of Web3 in the metaverse in terms of what it will become more than what it is right now? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the problems is, is there may be several um, you know, several um, applications here or, or, or several utilities. Here, here's the way I think about it at the kind of highest, simplest level. Um, the internet was built bottom up and that's kind of its best and worst feature. It's this amalgamation and mess of things that have gotten us to where we are. And it has many things that no one could have ever dreamed of and utility in it. But it also lacks some core features um, that if you think about it, if you built the internet top down tomorrow, would be obvious to include. One is identity, right? The idea that we continually recreate ourselves across the internet in a hodgepodge way, and it doesn't follow us around because it's owned by the platform we're on when we create it, is silly when you think about it and would never happen if you built an internet top down, right? And there may be different ways to solve that, but the fundamental Web3 technology right now looks like probably the easiest, and there's a lot of utility in it. If you had a cohesive identity around the internet, what are some things you would do? Payments is an obvious one, right? It would be a wallet, it would follow you. This isn't the only way to solve it, right? And there, it's, But it's one that I think might drive some utility into the ecosystem. So in the crypto world specifically, just given that the greatest risk I think to it is, is the greatest existential risk is regulation, you know, how do you guys think about that, right? Do you try to impact and influence at a regulatory level? Do you just kind of let your CEOs do what they're going to do? What, how do you approach this? No, we've, we think a lot about the reg regulation piece of this and, and 
you know, probably a better answer to your question about what would create a quantum leap here might be clear regulation because you're boxing out major, you know, um, buckets of really strong entrepreneurs who just aren't going to touch it until it's, there's some clarity around the regulation side. We've been pretty involved. Um, we've tried to, you know, be part of the effort of trying to figure out solutions and guiding people because one of the issues is that many of the regulators, it's not like they have a counter position. They don't really have a position, right? They don't, they don't know enough. And so how can people who do help educate and, you know, be a part of that discussion? So that is something that we think about and, and have tried to do. And some people on our team are kind of more involved in that um, than others. But I guess I'm of the belief that almost any regulation would help here because clarity would go a very long way. Even if it wasn't exactly what, you know, us deep in it who want to optimize want to see, it would help. But the lack of clarity is its worst enemy right now. So do, do you worry that, you know, kind of given how polarized our politics is, that we'll just kind of keep flipping from one side to the next and we'll never get the clear logical crypto regulations because different ideology will be in power every two and four years? Yeah, I mean, I worry about that or like, basically across every political topic um, uh, with crypto being one of them. Yeah. And there is a timeliness to it, right? Like if you, if it drags up too long, if it's, if it lacks clarity, you know, and flip-flops in many cycles, you will lose innovators drive ecosystems and um, you don't want to lose that. So I, yeah, I think it's a giant risk. So climate, you guys have a special fund for climate. Do you have a special fund because you see unique opportunities or because you're not sure to produce the same kind of returns that your LP are used to, but it's an important issue and you need to be involved in it? Yeah. So I think we have a separate climate fund um, really for three reasons, and it requires a little bit of background on the climate fund. I think one of the great things about USV is it's a small partner-driven firm, right? So there are you know six of us. Um, and we believe that we should invest in things that are going to optimize returns and make a lot of money that are thesis driven and also that we're interested in. Like one, one thing I really love about our firm is that a good reason not to do something is like we just don't care. Um, and we raise funds of a size that allow us to do that, right? We don't raise multi-billion dollar funds where you have to take a top-down approach and say, I have to be an X percentage of these great companies. We raise funds that if we're right about the things we choose to do enough, they will have great returns. We don't need to do everything. And I think we all really like that. Climate was something that originally my partner, Albert, started really talking to us about. And we have a system where every couple of weeks we have a block of time on Wednesday mornings that aren't devoted to active deals or investments. They're just about ideas. And generally someone grabs the time and throws something up, not, you know, we're very into like kind of half-baked thinking, so not polished, not complete, and says, I'm kind of like, I'm toying with this. I'm really interested in this. And it's ranged what that is over time. And eventually that evolves into our theses. And time after time after time for a while, he grabbed the time and, and was really talking to us about climate. And we all really came to see his perspective that not only was this one of the biggest issues of our time, but that the timing was right for it to be venture scale investable for a whole host of reasons, right? The falling cost of underlying technology that goes into it, the appetite among entrepreneurs, regulatory infrastructure, et cetera. Um, so the first thing we had to do was align around that. And then we had to figure out how to fit it into our funds. And we decided to raise its own fund really for kind of three core reasons. One, you know, I do think it was an experiment. And when you have experiments, it's good to isolate them. Um, and we didn't really know how it was going to go. And so that was one reason to put it in its own bucket. 
Um, the second was um, originally we weren't, we didn't want to force LPs into it. You know, we aren't climate, we didn't start out as climate investors. We do believe that early stage investing isn't about expertise. It's about a repeatable process about gaining perspective. So our, you know, we don't hire people who are healthcare experts or financial services experts. We are people who believe that with interest, we can go to perspective collectively quickly. And that was our goal on climate. But we didn't want to, you know, force LPs into it. In the end, actually, our LPs were quite interested in it. And so really, it is basically the same LP base. But that was one of the original motivations. Um, and then the third, which is by far the biggest, is we take anchoring our funds to theses pretty seriously. It drives a lot of our internal decision-making and how we think about them. And it wasn't really totally the same thesis. There's definitely things we will do in climate that don't fit the core thesis. And because of that, we wanted to separate it out into its own fund. So does that mean the money needs to be more patient or is just that what you're doing here is more science driven than your other investments? You know, where do they all diverge? No, it's not about the money. It's about the types of companies. For instance, the climate fund has, has um, you know, our, our core fund is really anchored on software focused, bottom up growth businesses that can leverage net, network effects to broaden access. Right. And that is something we talk a lot about and we kind of dive into verticals around it. Um, our climate fund has a bunch of kind of more hard science in it. Um, you know, carbon capture on the back of semi trucks with a company like Remora um, or thinking about carbon capture and algae or soil, um, you know, things that wouldn't fit that thesis that aren't software oriented as much. And so we wanted to separate that out. I like to tell myself, and maybe this is how I sleep at night, but that ultimately technology will allow us to deal with climate change, whether that's carbon capture or whatever you're going to do with it. And there are things that we can do to change the underlying equation. Uh, based on your investments, based on the stuff you're seeing, is that a fair assumption? Oh, I think it's a very fair assumption. I, one, I think, you know, one of the reasons selfishly that I'm very happy to be doing the climate fund is I find climate, as I think many do, you know, something you can really spin over. You're like, this is really bad. You know, this is not good. But you meet these founders and you invest in it and you're like, this is bad, but there's opportunity here, right? We're not at the point of no return structurally. There are major unlocks that can happen and technology is going to be a massive part of it. Now, as you know, well, regulatory will be a massive part of it as well. Federal funding will be a massive part of it, but the underlying technology that can allow you know, systems to happen differently and change directions of things um, is a huge piece of it. And I think it's really happening. And when you think about unlocking things like nuclear or hydrogen, you're going to really need technology innovation to create total new energy forms that we can actually use. So if you go back to where you were at Stanford and you were advised to go into venture, of the assumptions you walked in with, which were right and which were wrong? The assumptions, you know, I don't know. I think as a young person walking into venture, you often think um, it's a buy side business. And I think very quickly in venture, you learn that it's a sell, it's a sell side business um, that for the best um, investments, really, I think probably in any market, um, you're really you're selling and you're thinking about why as capital's commodity, yours is the best and, and what you can really add to it. Um, you know, you hear a lot from the outside in venture about individual stars, people who are great investors, and obviously those exist. But my story in venture has really been a lot about collective teams and um, collective processes and how um, collaborative thinking gets to better outcomes. Um, and, and, 
you know, better decisions. And, and that's been something I've really enjoyed about it and, and certainly believe. Um, you know, I also think like, um, you think that it, it's this business of picking winners and, you know, betting on the stars and it, it somewhat is from an outcomes perspective, but from a time perspective, it's not. Um, and that, you know, how long and how much time you spend with every decision you make, um, in this business and, and how well you live with it and, and the people involved. So I, you know, I think all of those now feel somewhat obvious, but I, I think would have surprised me at the time. I'm sure you're constantly asked by founders, what do you look for in a founder? But like, I'm curious, cause you guys do so much early stage investing. How do you see kind of the issue of tangibles versus intangibles? Are you making a bet most of the time that this is the person you think can create something of real value, whatever it turns out to be? Or is it more, I love the market, I love the idea, and this person is probably good enough to get us from point A to point B? I think it's somewhere in between. There are certainly firms out there who take the bet that you bet on the very best entrepreneurs and they are going to figure it out. And some people are very, very good at that. USV, and I've really drank this Kool-Aid, we believe we need to see both that we want to bet on, you know, extraordinary founders who we believe, you know, can breathe air into nothing, you know, breathe, breathe life into nothing and make things possible and are extraordinary recruiters and magnets of talent and are able to both operate at kind of high level dream states and also in the weeds and in the details simultaneously um, are very product centric, um, those kind of things. But we need them against markets and hypotheses that we believe in. Um, we do really anchor around theses. That's partly why we're so thesis driven. We, we, will, we won't invest in something without real belief in the thesis behind the market and the opportunity. Look, you guys are admirably not taking advantage of this craze to become as big of a fund as possible. You very much limit your fund size. But when you look around, you see all these other funds, most of whom are not, you know, don't have the track record that you do, uh, just raising crazy, crazy amounts of money. You know, how does it make you feel? And do you think that they'll pay a price for kind of behaving this way because they'll never be able to deploy the capital in the ways that they'll get the returns their investors want? Or do you think it's just that the incentive structure has changed so much that as long as they're getting their, you know, really high management fees, they don't care what else happens? Well, I think overall in the last really five to seven years, the incentive structure in VC for many has definitely shifted from carry to management fees. It's kind of hard to dispute that looking around, but I've really drank, you know, I think you can't be at USV and not drink the Kool-Aid on how you do things. You can't really be anywhere in this kind of job and not drink your own Kool-Aid. And, and I don't think there is one right answer here at all. And, and, you know, time is going to prove that out, but if you want to invest the way we do, I don't think you can do it on a giant fund because you have to at some point take a top-down approach, right? And have to be more coverage-driven. And that's just not what we want to do. And we think for the earliest stage that will play out stronger in returns when we can go in it more narrow and more thesis-driven. I think, um, look, I like to speak about USV's past because I wasn't there, so I'm not bragging, right? But I've, you know... I've seen I've seen the proof in the pudding, right? Where USV didn't raise the biggest fund, but something like a Coinbase creates a 27x fund. And that's very, very hard to do when you're operating on many billions of dollars of base capital there. And it's, you know, 
it's something we strive for. And I see that I saw my partners do it and now I want to do that. Right. And so um, I believe that this model works and can create really great returns, which in the end are going to be more valuable than bigger management fees. They should be what matters. I remember talking to a fund manager who raised a $600 million Series A fund, and I said, how can you possibly deploy all that capital to get, I mean, forget about a 20X, like a 4X. You know, when it all shakes out, I think we'll get two macro types of funds. We'll have the behemoths, like Sequoia, that have so much money that they'll always be relevant. And then the other funds that are strongly differentiated in some way. For you guys, it's your expertise, your approach, your system. Yeah. For us, it's the regulatory angle. And then there's all those funds in the middle that, you know, maybe work when everyone's throwing money at every asset class possible, but may not survive long term. What do you think? I think that's right. I think that's definitely right. I mean, the other couple of advantages we see of, of the small fund size, right, are that um, we've always believed in syndicates. And syndicates have kind of gotten tossed aside in the last few years just because there have been so many capital and so much capital in the fund, it's, it's hard to create room. But there's many examples in USV's history where syndicates have been important, where if stories aren't linear, which we're about to see them not be, right, then you need people around the table, more ideas, more access, and that's been very valuable. Um, and we also like that. And so um, that's much easier to do in a fund of our size than than a larger one. Um, also, I think a little bit, there's been this myth of risk, right? Where people are putting in, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to companies that somehow like they feel have been de-risked, but they aren't, right? And so, and we're seeing that now play out. And so a model with a smaller fund size where you are really thinking about this is risk capital and is sized accordingly versus growth capital, you know, may I think it may have a time to shine in a market where, you know, getting into here. All right. Last question. What's the thing you do in your life that's totally separate from work, totally separate from venture, but the fact that you do it makes you better at your job as well? Oh, that's such a good one. I think I have two big ones. Um, the first is I have a um, one and a half year old and a four year old. And um, they require, they're a lot of joy, but they require a huge amount of patience. And... Uh, um, time management and prioritization. And I think I have never built those muscles more that are useful in my um, career than with my children. Um, and then the second one is I, you know, I studied um, Russian literature in college. I'm an avid fiction reader. Um, I'm not much for business books, but I do read a lot of novels. And I believe that lessons you can learn from what creates a great story um, when the story is for the author to create, not for the you know world to retell, um, is hugely applicable to early stage businesses. And so I always find connection there. And that's a perfect place to end this because I'm supposed to start each episode by mentioning that we're recording from P&T Knitwear, which is a new bookstore I opened a couple of months ago on the Lower East Side. And, uh, you know, we love it. Uh, the dreaded New York Times wrote actually a pretty nice story about it uh, in today's paper. So um, check that out if, if you want to. And yeah, come on by, uh, have a coffee, read a book, whatever. We'd love to see you. Love it. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much.